If you'll join me in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we will begin looking at verse 16 this morning, Romans 1.16. If you want to follow along in the blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 939. The title of our sermon this morning is The Power of God. And our keywords for our worshipers and training are ashamed, gospel, and power. In his book, The Closing of the American Mind, author Alan Bloom made the argument that American college campuses were absolutely overtaken by moral relativism, and he wrote this in the 1990s. Everything he writes, that was once understood to be a universal moral principle, any objective standard of what is right and what is wrong was replaced by a subjective personal value structure that left no room for absolutes. No right, no wrong, no absolute truth, only your truth and my truth. Bloom argued that as a result, we were seeing more and more evidence that the lives of college students were, flat, uh, were flatter, were emptier, and were more and more meaningless. Well, I think Bloom's conclusions were absolutely correct, but as, as bad as it was then, it certainly didn't stop there. In fact, we can really say that things have moved very far beyond what he wrote in terms of moral relativism to a place now that is more akin to something like an amorphous moral judgment. Here's what I mean by that. There is a moral standard by which everyone wants to judge everyone else by. However, that moral standard is constantly changing. What you say today to the applause of the masses could be just as easily something that you are more metaphorically hung in the public square for in the next few months. As a result of the ever-changing environment of morality, what have we all started doing, especially with the advent of social media? In many ways, we've all been thrust into this world of self-censorship. We're, we're more prone to carefully guard our words. We're very sensitive to what we say and how we say it. And we want to make sure that we don't overstep one of the new norms that has come up within the last few weeks or months, lest we are identified as one who must be canceled at all costs. This is cancel culture. If you think in a way other than what you're supposed to think, you will be canceled. No questions asked. And of course, social media has, has made sure that if an issue comes up, if anything happens, you are supposed to express your opinion to the world immediately, but you have to do it in the right way. If you don't say it in the right way, what happens? You're canceled. But then, of course, if you, you don't say anything at all or you don't do it quickly enough, you've said something by not saying anything and, again, canceled. You see, it's moved beyond this idea that Bloom had of subjective your truth and my truth, and it has become get on Twitter every morning, see what's trending, and make sure you make a comment about it so you can stay current. Civil conversation not an option, get on board or be canceled. 
And know that just because you were applauded and accepted yesterday, there's a very good chance that you could be canceled for something else tomorrow. There's this interesting phenomenon that takes place in various cultures, and it's these two issues of guilt and shame. And this is really what all of this is about, right? There are some cultures, academics study these kinds of things, and they call them guilt cultures and shame cultures. In a guilt culture, which is largely what Western civilization was built upon, you are guided by your conscience. You feel the guilt of your sin. You feel the weight of what is right and what is wrong in your life. When something is wrong in your actions, in your thinking, in your conscience, you respond with guilt. And culturally, the expectation is that when you have this guilt, it is going to result in some kind of self-correction. As Christians, we understand that through the process of repentance. That's very different from shame culture. Shame culture is determining the goodness or badness of what you think or what you do externally. That is, that is different <coughs> than this guilt culture because in, in shame culture, it's determined by what the people in your community think. And so cancel culture, what what we have leapt into, is shame culture. And I believe it's largely because of our connections through social media. There's this, this constant hustle that people get into and engage in to get as many followers as they can, to ma- as many likes as they are able, and in so doing, they want to be noticed. But if you want to be noticed and you want to be liked, what do you have to do? You have to toe the line. Because there's a desire to be embraced, to be liked, to be applauded, to be famous, to be praised by your community. And so the interesting thing that researchers point out is the common behavior patterns that this this creates. First, members of a, a group will lavish one another with praise so that they themselves might be accepted and praised in return. Second, there are enforcers which, within the group, and, and they're going to build their personal power and their reputation by policing the group and condemning those who break the group code. And then there are people who are extremely anxious that might be condemned or denigrated because they're not saying things exactly right. They demand instant respect. They demand instant recognition. They feel some moral wrong has been perpetrated when the group has been disrespected. They react with violence and insensitivity. So guilt culture is tough because it's a a moral obligation to recognize our own sin and confess our sin and to recognize that there is a need for reconciliation and self-government. But there is a clear structure that is defined by an objective standard of morality, and the West has generally known that to be based upon the moral law of God. The modern shame culture, on the other hand, while it claims to value inclusion and tolerance, is actually extremely unmerciful to all who disagree and thereby are canceled and set outside the camp. And let's all be honest, none of us want to be canceled. None of us want to be set outside the camp. I'm not talking about social media. I hope as Christians we're not all that concerned about whether or not we get kicked off of Twitter or Facebook. I'm talking about our own communities. 
What is it like to be completely excluded with no way of getting back in? The idea like that changes the way that we communicate. It changes our behavior. So we won't say what we think a lot of times. Depending on who we're around, we might alter the way that we talk. And we might even get embarrassed for others that we agree with, but they said something in front of others that we would never say in front of those people. And so we're embarrassed for them. We sort of cringe for them because they didn't get it. And we end up living our lives completely and totally ashamed of who we are and how we think and what we do. Shame has been a problem for the human race ever since Adam and Eve bit into the forbidden fruit and realized that they were naked. Their response was to run and to hide from God. Suddenly, they were sinful, weak, damaged people living in a dangerous world. They found themselves under God's righteous judgment, exposed to other sinners' sinful judgment and rejection in their own lives, and they were wide open to the condemning accusations of the evil one. And because sin is alive in our bodies, because all of us are beset with the weaknesses of humanity, the kind of shame we often experience is a potent combination of failure and pride. What tends to happen is we sin and, and we fail morally and we fail as a result of our limitations. We fail because the creation is subjected to futility. And because we are full of sinful pride, we become ashamed of our failures and we see our weaknesses and we will go to almost any length to hide them from others. And this shame holds great power over us. We don't want to be exposed, so, so we hide. We don't want to be canceled, so, so we hide behind ideas that we may not even agree with. We don't want to be outed as someone who's not doing what the community has told us we are supposed to do, and all of that is fueled by our pride. And this pride-fueled shame can wield some great power over us. It controls significant parts of our lives. It consumes our energy. It consumes our time so we aren't exposed. This is a very important thing for us to think about as we consider what Paul writes as we begin looking at Romans 1.16 this morning. We're going to take three weeks on this verse because he says so much that is so vitally important, and it begins with this idea of shame and what shame does to us and what shame does to the gospel. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you're, you're familiar with Romans 1.16, but what does Paul really teach us here? I, I don't believe it's an overstatement to say that this is the central verse in the book of Romans. It's really a summary of what Paul is going to lay out for us throughout the rest of the letter. If we do not understand Romans 1.16 and the importance of being unashamed of the gospel, we will not get Romans. And so he starts with this idea of shame. This is very important for us 
particularly in our culture today. So let's read what Paul says. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We're going to look at two things in this verse this morning. We're going to think about these two things in the form of questions. Two questions we are going to think through and hopefully answer. Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel. So the first question we have to ask is, why is that an important statement? Why would anyone be ashamed of the gospel? And the second thing we need to ask is, why shouldn't we be ashamed of the gospel? Our two questions. So first, why would we ever be ashamed of the gospel? I hope when you read your Bible, you sort of read it in this way. Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And the first thing you should think as a, as a Christian as you're reading this is, that's interesting. Why would Paul write that? Why would he ever be ashamed of the gospel? What is to be ashamed of? Why is that an issue? If you think about the gospel itself, and we, we've talked about this recently and we, we want to think about this again, the gospel itself is an announcement. It's a proclamation, a specific kind of good news as it pertains to life, death, and resurrection in our Lord Jesus Christ. So why would Paul ever be ashamed of believing and proclaiming that message? Certainly, one of the reasons we don't really stop to think about that question much is because all of us have likely had hesitations at best and maybe even downright embarrassment at times to admit or to proclaim that we are Christians and that we do, in fact, believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, haven't we? I've learned over the years that there is inevitable in it an inevitable question that comes up in conversations in every new relationship and more instances, more instances than not, it's going to make it very uncomfortable all of a sudden. What do you do for a living? Well, listen, you can be cooler than Miles Davis, but as soon as those words, I am a pastor, come from your mouth, it gets really weird. It's weird. So I get it. I understand this, this pressure, this desire to hold back and to hide. And I imagine, imagine for the Apostle Paul. Remember, everything that we have learned about him to this point in Romans, think about all that you know about Paul from all of the other letters that he's written and what we see about him from the book of Acts. Paul was a Jew amongst Jews. He was in the elite class of the Jewish people as a Pharisee. He was out there persecuting the church and doing everything he could to, to put down the gospel, to get rid of the gospel, to eliminate the church, that they not take over. But then, what happened? The Lord saved Paul on the road to Damascus instantly. He had this dramatic, radical encounter with the risen Lord Jesus and then he became an ambassador of Christ, as an apostle of Christ. Paul even tells us what he endured for the sake of the gospel in 2 Corinthians 11. He wrote this, he says, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. 
Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Listen, I I don't think any of us have had those experiences in our lives, and yet Paul has endured all of these things, and in the face of it, he has said, look, I need this to be clear before we get on to anything else that I'm about to write. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Do what you want to me, I will endure it, but I am not ashamed of this gospel. Now, for all honest, we would admit it is easy to not be ashamed of something if everyone else around us agrees with that thing. As we sit here in this room today, it's very easy for all of us as Christians to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel because hopefully all of us believe that. In our hearts, we believe we're not ashamed of the gospel. But all of the sudden, when there are threats of death, there are threats of being beaten five times with 39 lashes, all of the sudden that question as to whether or not we are ashamed of the gospel, all of the sudden the question of whether or not I am willing to be unashamed of the gospel in my social circles becomes a little bit more difficult, doesn't it? As soon as this begins to trend in another direction, when things become more and more unpopular, It begins to cost something to stand on the certain ideas and beliefs of the Bible, we can begin to feel shame. Now look how this unfolds for Paul. Remember back in verse 14, he wrote that he is under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. And we said more literally that he was was saying there that he is in debt to them. He is indebted to them. He has a debt to pay off to them because he has been a recipient of God's amazing grace. And therefore, he has an obligation to proclaim the gospel to them that they may come to know and trust and love the Lord Jesus Christ as well. But unlike any other debt, here's the thing about this kind of debt, many of them were not interested in having him pay it off, right? Think about that. As recipients of God's grace, you and I are indebted to our unbelieving neighbors and family and friends. But do they want what the Bible tells us we owe to them? Are they asking us to pay that debt, as it were? (laughs) Hardly. Now, every now and then, you might get a Nicodemus in your life who comes to you and says, please, will you tell me the way to eternal life? But in my experience, that is not very often. Remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1? He said, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. You see, the ingredients for shame are all right there. You believe what? You do what with your time? You think what about whatever moral issue of the day is that we're talking about? 
You see, most of us have been on the receiving end of those responses, haven't we? In a few weeks, we're going to get into some texts here in Romans chapter 1, and we're going to hit some verses that one time the world almost universally would have agreed with, but today, collectively, the world wants to look at them and say, what? Talk about, talk about getting canceled. Individuals and churches and entire denominations have fallen into a trap because they don't want to be shamed. They don't want to be canceled. They don't want to be thought of as irrelevant in our culture by cultural standards and therefore have become ashamed of the truth of God's Word and the gospel and its implications. So we have to see that the gospel here is as Paul is presenting it. And before Everything else that he says, we have to understand that it comes from a place where he is able to do this as one who is unashamed and above pretty much anyone else, we could probably give a pass if one time in his ministry he shrunk back and sought to hide because of fear. But this is very much the basis for Christians being shamed in a shaming culture, the gospel itself you crazy people. You believe all these supernatural fairy tales. You hold on to your holier-than-thou moral principles that are archaic and oppressive. Listen, it takes guts to stand for the gospel. And as much as that is true here, imagine what that means right now in places like Pakistan or Iran or North Korea. God help our brothers and sisters who are not concerned with being canceled on Twitter or Facebook. They're concerned about losing everything they have, being torn away from their families, and hopefully not being tortured and killed because they stand upon the truth of the gospel. You see, the Bible is clear that the gospel brings out shaming behavior in those who do not believe it. It brings it all to the surface. And let's be careful about that because there's this tendency to use this, this popular phrase. And people will say that the gospel is offensive. When we think of Paul's words, remember Paul wrote, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And the popular takeaway from that is that the gospel is offensive. But listen, the gospel is not offensive. The gospel itself is the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world, born of a virgin, living a perfect life that we were required to live but could not, dying a sinner's death that we deserved because of our sin. And He did that on our behalf, and He died and was buried, and three days later rose again from the grave, defeating sin, defeating death for us that we might live forever and ever with Him in perfect communion as God's children by God's grace through faith alone as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our glorious Savior. That's not offensive. That is good news. It is not the gospel itself that is offensive. Listen to this. J.C. Ryle wrote this. He said, 
Let us never be moved by those who charge the gospel with being the cause of strife and divisions upon earth. Such men only show their ignorance when they talk in this way. It is not the gospel which is to blame, but the corrupt heart of man. It is not God's glorious remedy which is in fault, but the diseased nature of Adam's race, which, like a self-willed child, refuses the medicine provided for its cure. So long as some men and women will not repent and believe, and some will, there must needs be division. To be surprised at it is the height of folly. The very existence of division in one proof of Christ's foresight and of the truth of Christianity. Do you see that? Do you, do you hear what Ryle is saying there? I absolutely agree with him. It is not the gospel which is to blame, but the corrupt hearts of men. To say otherwise is to speak of the gospel in a way that portrays it as something other than the good news that it is. When we understand that man's nature, man's heart, compared to the glorious gift that is ours in Christ Jesus, we we begin to see where the blame really belongs. Not on God, not on His glorious remedy, as Ryle calls it, but rather upon man and his moral depravity. The gospel is not offensive in the least bit. It is the greatest news in all the world. It is simply that man in his depravity cannot not be offended because it convicts and condemns when we are in unbelief. So hopefully we're understanding that there is a reality that we are not thinking about the gospel rightly and what God has done to bring us to understand and to love and to believe the gospel if we think that it is offensive. And if we're not thinking rightly about the gospel, then we will be ashamed. It's the basis upon which many in the world will seek to shame us. And if we, brothers and sisters, are not vigilant and seeking daily communion with God and mindful of the gospel and its implications in our lives, we will be shamed. However, The gospel does something else. When we believe the gospel, when we are daily reminding ourselves of the gospel, it gives us freedom from shame. It gives freedom from shame to all who will believe. So the second question we have to ask of the text is, why shouldn't we be ashamed of the gospel? Again, Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for... It is the power of God for salvation. There's our answer. We've thought about how it is that we could be ashamed of the gospel, how the world seeks to shame us because of the gospel. And we have all experienced that in our own lives. But Paul gives us a clear answer as to why we should not be ashamed of the gospel, namely because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Those Greeks, they have their philosophical heritage and culture, and they mock me because of my preaching. Those unbelieving Jews, they may think that I'm following the false Messiah, a false prophet who deserves to die, and they may think that I'm a fool, but I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. This is why getting the gospel right is so important, you see. 
The essence of Christianity is the good, joyful, victorious news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that differentiates Christianity from every other philosophy or religion in this world. It is not good advice about what you must do. It is good news about what has been done for you. If you ask the average person, what do you think is the essence of Christianity? They're probably going to say something like, it means that you believe in Jesus and the Bible and try, but you fail to live up to that and what it teaches. And you may hear that and think, okay, that sounds okay. But really, that's not okay because that is not the essence of Christianity, is it? The essence of Christianity is not what you must do. The essence of Christianity is the announcement of what has already been done. I'm going to keep saying that because we need to keep reminding ourselves, if you are a Christian, something outside of you has happened, and that is deeply profound. It wasn't you who did it. It was done for you. It has changed you entirely. The essence of Christianity is not do unto others as you want done unto you. The essence of Christianity is not even love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. As true and important and vital as those are, those are not the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is that something has been done now, so the Father looks at us, the Father loves us, the Father delights in us, the Father accepts us. And all of it is because God loved us and sent His Son to die for us, and now we can have a right standing before Him on the basis of what Christ has accomplished. Our relationship with God has been changed. And, and it's not even so much about something that has happened inside of you, first and foremost, because then it would still be about us, right? That wouldn't be gospel. It's about something that has happened outside of us that has changed God's relationship with us, and it's all been done for us. Now, perhaps you think, well, the gospel is about forgiveness. And again, while God offers us forgiveness, that's wonderful and true and essential, but that is also not what the gospel is. Again, that idea is very much centered on us, not on Christ. Think about, think about what Paul says uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I often cite that. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to say that Jesus was made sin? Well, it doesn't mean that Jesus was made sinful. He wasn't all of a sudden made to be a sinner after He lived a perfect life right before His death. No, it means that Jesus was treated as our sins deserve to be treated. He was given the treatment that we deserve as a result of our sins. And so the good news is first and foremost not about us and not even about what God does in us. It is about Jesus. 
His life was perfect, a life that we cannot live. His death was the death deserved by sinners, so you don't have to die that death. His resurrection was a powerful defeat over ultimate death and the power of sin to keep us confined to the world of the enemy because we needed a release from the bondage of sin and death that we are unable to provide. So the good news of the gospel is that Christ did all of this so that His righteousness, His right standing before the Father could be imputed to us, it could be counted to us as our righteousness So that when God looks at us, He sees us as a people whose ransom has been paid, whose debt has been fulfilled, whose punishment has been doled out already to Christ. So by our faith alone, in Christ alone, all given to us by the grace of God alone, it is sufficient and we don't need to do anything. It's already been done. That is the powerful message that transforms us by faith. If I ask you, are you a Christian, what will you say? Sometimes I'll ask people that question and they'll respond something like, well, I'm trying to be. And that tells me that they're not understanding the power of the gospel. I know why we say that, I know why we think that, because we do not feel worthy to be called Christians, or we look at our lives and we think about our lives and where we've been and what we're doing and what we're planning on doing, and we recognize, I'm not worthy of this. How awful am I? How could God ever love me? And you know what? You're right. You're right, you're not worthy of this, but God did it for you anyway, and that's what's so amazing about God's grace, isn't it? Remember a few weeks ago we talked about this. God isn't ashamed of you. God is not constantly rolling His eyes at you and everything you do and constantly annoyed that He saved you in the first place. No, the Bible tells us that God delights in you as His child. So, Let's, let's put a bow on this. When Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, he's not saying that the gospel brings the power of God or that it results in the power of God or that it is a means to the power of God. That's not Paul's intention here. What Paul is telling us is that when you and I believe the gospel, when we hear the gospel, and when God gives us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand the gospel, when we grasp the implications of the gospel and the degree to which it works in us and through us, the very power of God Himself is at work in us and through us. You see, the gospel is not just a collection of events and ideas. The gospel is the power of God. That ties back to everything we've said. Why do people take offense at the gospel and seek to shame those who believe it? Because it is so powerful. And in that power, it overcomes the kingdom of self. We all, our natural fleshly inclination is to orient ourselves in this world as kings and queens, but the, the gospel breaks that notion down and it says you cannot be a king, 
You cannot be a queen in this world because you don't have what it takes. The only person who can be a king or queen in this world had to live a perfect life, and you are not it. And our flesh hates that. And maybe you hear this and you yourself find the gospel upsetting you. It's kind of dealing with you right now. Are you wrestling with it? Are, is it bothering you? Listen, I would rather someone come to Redeemer for a couple of weeks and be so revolted that they have to leave. At least they were feeling the power of the gospel confronting in their rebellion to God and their denial of the gospel rather than just saying, well, that's interesting that you people believe that, but I don't really have time for it. I don't really care. Then you're in absolutely no position to ever experience the transformative power of the gospel. I'd rather you be upset and offended than you be indifferent. Well, there will be some people who will say, all that matters is that you've received Christ and you're living upon His righteousness, so nothing else really matters. You can live as you please. You can do what you please. It doesn't matter. You're forgiven. But that's not true either, is it? Remember what we saw a few weeks ago? Who is Paul writing to? He's writing to the Christians in Rome, and by extension, he's writing to us. And what does he say we are? Remember that word he used. He said, we are the saints of God. We are set apart to be holy. And the righteousness of Christ is what we are standing upon in this life. We are being transformed. We're being developed day after day after day to be more like Christ Himself. We are delighting in God's law. We are loved by God in spite of what we are and what we have done. But when the Lord gives you the grace to have faith, to believe the gospel, it begins to change everything about you because it's so powerful. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. I, I'm a man of many flaws, and I know them well. It takes a lifetime. It takes a lifetime. We can't overestimate the effects of our regeneration. It takes a lifetime. And even the Lord will eventually take us out of this world, and we've never even come close to being what we will be when we are glorified in heaven with Christ. And so here is the testimony of every Christian in the world. I know my own sins, I know my own failures, I know my own flaws, and all the things I have done and am doing and contemplating doing. When I look at God's law, I am keenly aware of how, fall, how far I fall short. But God has graciously and powerfully loved me and called me and made me His own by sending a messenger of the gospel to proclaim the truth of Christ and Him crucified. And the power of God coursed through this amazing message, and I was transformed forever. Not perfectly by any means, but I was changed and no longer ashamed or shaming. So now I know what it has done for me, and I know what it can do for you, so I have nothing to be ashamed of. The only reason I am who I am and I can stand with faith and hope and joy and trust in the midst of a world that seems to be burning down all around me is because Christ is my Savior, and He is faithful to me even when I'm not faithful to Him. What could I possibly be ashamed of?
No matter what the world brings against us, brethren, it is not powerful enough to overcome the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what about you? Are you following after Christ? If you're not, will you join me in following after Christ? Will you look to Christ that you might have abiding communion with Him, believing and trusting and being transformed by the power of God in His glorious message of hope and reconciliation? I pray you will. I pray you will come with me, and together we shall commune with our powerful God who is not ashamed of us nor shall we be ashamed of Him or the power of the gospel that makes us new creations in Christ alone.